Hello and welcome back to Control-Alt-Delete. My guest today is Caroline O'Donoghue, an Irish author, journalist and host of the award-winning Sentimental Garbage, a brilliant podcast where she talks to authors, fans and cultural critics about the chiclet genre and the books that are often overlooked in the literary sphere. I'm sure listeners of this podcast will have also been hooked on the recent Sentimental Garbage miniseries with Dolly Alderton called Sentimental in the City, where they unpick every season of Sex and the City in their signature humorous style. We talk a bit about that in this episode, you'll be pleased to know. Caroline has contributed to Grazia, the Irish Times, the Irish Examiner, BuzzFeed, Vice, so many others. She is a brilliant writer and her first novel, Promising Young Women, came out in 2018. She was shortlisted for the Irish Book Awards Newcomer of the Year and other awards. And her second adult novel, Scenes of a Graphic Nature, was published in 2020. And today we're discussing All Our Hidden Gifts, her first novel for young adults, which is out now. It's a story of tarot, magic and teen friendship and it's such a great read it's a really brilliant book and I thoroughly enjoyed it so I hope you enjoyed this episode with Caroline we got to do it in person which is still a massive novelty so here is the episode and if you enjoyed it you know what to do please go and leave a little review it would mean so much so here it is hello Caroline Hi! I get to feel like I'm, I've am i got a show and not a podcast now that I'm in a fancy booth. This is so exciting. This is a great, great big day for us, for me, for you. It's like this is both of our first real life podcasts back, right? Yeah. Back to school. I think it's been six months. So I'm looking at your actual face. <laughs> yeah. So nice. So I thought I'd start off by getting sentimental. I've really been enjoying your podcast and I just wanted to... I don't know, ask you about how that's been because I feel like it's every millennial in the whole of the UK and beyond and yeah. Australia, apparently. Australia loved it. I know. It's, do you know, it's so strange. So, um, uh, no one knows what we're talking about. I, among other things, have a podcast called Sentimental Garbage. It's been going for like two and a half years and it's become one of the, it's definitely one of those things where it's like we talk about a very specific form of female literature, um, sort of chiclet and kind of romance stuff. And I always thought of it as like, a popular podcast <laughs> like it was never in the charts or anything but it was like it had this like devoted following and then um me and dolly dolly alderton started a sex in the city podcast during lockdown called sentimental in the city and i kind of always thought because dolly has this huge podcasting audience and like i knew that people would um come for her and i was I had that slight anxiety that I would be sort of skipper to Barbie a little bit, <laughs> which is fine. I have a lot of successful friends. We all have to take our turn at being skipper. But then it sort of took on this life that sort of transcended everything, really. And just, it's been amazing. It's like, yeah, it's, it has a, a weird amount of coverage in Australia. They're really on board with it. And it's sort of, um, you know, the podcast got sort of a million, view, million downloads in a month, and which is really unusual for me. And um, yeah, so it's been an unusual time to be a podcaster for me. I loved it. And I I don't know if this maybe added to that kind of mass like enjoyment, but when it came out, I feel like we weren't quite out of lockdown yet and we were still going through a bit of a bleak time. Mm. I don't think the rules had changed or anything. And I just felt this like relief of just listening to two friends chatting as if they were at some sleepover or like in the pub being a bit crazy. I know you were probably doing it remotely, but yeah. I really missed that and putting it on in the background. I was like, this is what podcasts are for to remind you that we yeah. have friends. <laughs> So I feel like you and I are very um, 
aligned on this because both of us have a real aversion to um, overly produced podcasts where it's a bit, it's like, that's what, that's what radio is for. I kind of like podcasting being this ring fenced art form for talking shite a bit. Totally. And that's you know? why when people ask me for podcast advice, I'm like, well, I've never strategized. So I don't know what advice to give you because I've always just wanted to geek out on a topic I love talking about. And so to plan, like I'm going to make this formula for people to yeah. consume. I'm like, that's not how I go about things. I know. Yeah, it's interesting. Cause when I first started in podcasting, we I did a show called um, School for Dumb Women that we almost did plan like a radio arrow. They're like, here are all our sections and here's our jingle music and stuff. And uh, and we kind of slowly realized like people aren't coming here for our cleverly composed sections. <laughs> so people just want to chat. Totally. <laughs> you know? I know. Absolutely loved it. So I wanted to talk about your new book, amongst other things, but sure. I... Really loved it. But I, before we go into the actual book itself, can we touch on that time in your life when you got the book deal? Because I was reading an article around uh, to, you talking about that time where mm. you'd lost two jobs. Yeah. Not just the pool that closed down, but also your column in the Irish Times. It was the Times of Ireland. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember seeing your tweets at that time and being like, oh my God, you're go really going through it. And yeah. then you described it in a piece that you almost had whiplash because your luck had changed so much. What yeah. was that like? It was a really big one because um, it, it was the, first of all, it was the jobs. Um, and that sucks because you you know, it's like yourself, you've been a freelancer and um, it was this pay phase where my first book was out, but it wasn't making any money yet. My second book was a long way off from being out. Um, I was still very much treading water, hand to mouth, sort of freelancey type jobs. And that, so that was really stressful. And then um, I had this sort of family health crisis uh, with my sister. And then I had my own health crisis, weirdly. Like, um, you know, I, I sort of... So this is also long ago now that... Was I, this 2019? 2019, yeah. And it feels long enough to get now that I can talk about with some distance but I found a lump in my breast mm. a few like literally six weeks after my own sister was diagnosed mm. with breast cancer and so it, it, it sort of snowballed in this place where it's like I have no money my family is going through this huge thing they're a different country away I can't even afford to you know go over there as much as I want you know um, and now I've found this and like there was still some uh, debate over whether or not my family like, carried like the BRCA gene and stuff, which is um would make it much more likely that basically if anyone knows what the BRCA gene is, it's like a a likelihood of whether or not you um could be diagnosed with uh, breast or ovarian cancer. And I couldn't afford, I couldn't get an appointment at the NHS, and I couldn't afford to get a private screening. And I was like, this is hell. This is the worst my life has ever been. And um, then I was working on this book as well um, all our hidden gifts about this teenage girl who sort of feeling a bit lost in the world and you know she discovers magic and she discovers new friends through magic and she has to sort of solve this terrible mystery of like what happened to her former best friend and I do think that the the terror and the loneliness and the sense of being out of options of that time period really just seeped into the Manuscript. I remember when I went sort of like shopping it around to publishers, one of the publishers who I didn't end up going with, she was like, I feel like there's a lot of sadness in this book. And I was like, <laughs> but then it turned around because I got this big deal and it was almost like even harder to readjust to be like, oh God, like this is the kind of deal that authors sort of dream of and that I was always told was so unlikely. And then to have it happen to you, for, like, in the first instance, it was like, 
all the bad stuff that was happening, I can't believe this is happening to me. And then when all the good stuff happened, it was like, I can't believe this is happening to me, (laughs) you know? Yeah, definitely. And that time where you talk about going back to Cork. Yeah. And you were wandering around and you were sort of going back to almost your teenage self, perhaps, because you were reminded of things. And that nostalgia must have really helped you kind of piece together what you wanted to write about. Yeah, it really, it really informed it. And like, I've had, I've had loads of conversations with my sister since. And she was like, I wish you'd stop talking about me. Like you were like Bette Midler in Beaches. Like it makes me seem like this like tragic character. Like there is more things to my character than, you know, me getting cancer and you having an awakening. (laughs) And I'm like, I know, I'm sorry. So I'm sorry if she's listening to this. Um, But yeah, so I went back and like the thing of like, when something like that happens to your family and you all come home, and we were all back in the house again for this, the only real instance that was like not Christmas. Mm-hmm. And I feel like when we, even when we're all home for Christmas, it's a thing everyone has so many other people to see. And it's like home is like a base that we're touching at, but never at the same time kind of thing. But we were all just under the same roof. I was back in my old bedroom that I hadn't slept in since I was maybe 14 because I moved into the big bedroom once my sister moved out. And it was weird being back at this dressing table that like I used to do my homework on that my legs now couldn't fit under properly. And then like just, yeah, wandering around the whole time, like taking the bus and just zoning out and walking through all these venues that I used to play music out with my friends. And and it was just, it was such a strange, like very transcendent memory-led experience of like finding all these little avenues and nooks and little places that I would never have visited on normal trips home. But on this trip home, I was like, well, I've got fuck all else to do except go home to the house where everyone's crying, you know? And, and I like how frank you were about how, because I, when things like that happen in big life moments where it puts things in perspective and your family and your health are like the most important things in life, hmm. it's it was really interesting to hear you kind of talk about how you did need to still get work though. It's almost yeah. like... Sometimes people say, oh, that doesn't matter when things like that happen. And it's like, yeah, but then you're acting like writing is a hobby when you say that, because actually this is our yeah. work. And in your article, anyone listening can go and Google it. But you basically say like you rang your agent being like, uh, I need to kind of like do something. Yeah. Um, and I thought that was just really, really useful for people to know, like writers. It's interesting. I yeah, People have funny relationships talking about money and writing. Because I think people like to preserve a notion of it being this romantic thing of the muse taking you and all this. And the muse does take you. Like when, you, when you're when you in a project and you're deep into it and you never cared about anything more than these characters and their trajectory, that is when the muse takes you. But when you're at that like scrabbling around looking for the next project moment, there's nothing musy about it at all. Mm-hmm. It was literally me and my agent. And I was just like, look, if there's anything you think I should do, just tell me and I will do it. And she was like, you love YA, write YA. And I was like, we talked about this a few years ago and you said that it was the wrong moment. And she was like, that was the wrong moment. This is the right moment. Oh, and cool. she, it's like, she's such an oracle when it comes to these things. Cause she was like, look, there's loads of mystery and suspense stuff happening in middle grade now. In about four years, those kids are going to want YA. Give me a mystery suspense thriller thing. Put some magic in it. You love magic. And I was like, you can't just say that, Bryony. <laughs> and then I went and thought about it. I was like, oh, I do have a story. <laughs> and then, then, then the sort of muse was ready 
to be taken, you know? And for those listening who don't really know the difference between the categories and genres in publishing, what uh, what was the main difference for you writing YA and not adult? Because obviously I've read both of your adult novels mm. and reading this, I loved it so much. I mean, obviously not, you know, I know people have compared it to like Sabrina the Teenage Witch and that mm. sort of mystical world where you just fall in love with the world and you just kind of wish you were in it. But I read it and it, it was just so heartwarming. And to me, it didn't feel like for teenagers, though, I enjoyed it as an adult. What, what's the difference between YA and adult? It's funny, isn't it? Because increasingly, um, it's it's adult women who read YA. Like um, there's loads of books like Red, White and Royal Blue, I think was a was a YA. But loads of adult women I knew read that. And um, be interesting, actually, to pinpoint some of the really well-known books that are YA that no one would ever think like I guess Twilight or The Hunger Games or something would yeah, fall into that yeah. right but no one no one would know that that is just so true because I would I would um there there's actually a lot of different sides to this kind of thing so technically speaking um young adult is anything 14 up there's generally you know it's generally about teenagers it's generally quite, quite light on sort of things like drug and sex use Right. Drug use and instances of sex. Sex use. <laughs> I didn't even pick that up. I was like, yeah, sex use. Yeah, sex use. <laughs> um, um, but broadly, I think it does. Ha- it's like a genre that has certain moods and things within it. I think it's not just an age range category. It's also a genre with its own sort of um, beats, archetypes, tropes, the same way that a horror might or crime might. It, so it's often... It's often dystopian or there's a kind of dystopian elements of it. Um, or there's like, if not dystopian, it's probably the wrong word. It's quite, quite an overused word, but like a huge adversary that is of the, the common bad, right? Yeah. Um, and it's often led by extremely hopeful, somewhat misfit teens. And there's, a, there's often a sort of slight wish fulfillment thing in it as well that is often sort of toys with magic and that kind of thing. What's, what's interesting is the difference between YA and straight fantasy is that YA will tend to take a more hopeful lens than a fantasy might. Right, um, I see. And that wish fulfillment thing, is that, because when I read it, I really saw myself in Maeve, the main character, where she she's a little bit weird, she's a little bit quirky. Mm. I saw myself in that sort of like, everyone does. That's the thing. Everyone feels like an outsider, even the cool people. I'm like, well, who were the actual outsiders then if we all felt that way? Yeah. But when she gets into tarot, it feels like like the Sabrina thing, like you just wish you had something that you were good at. I used to look out of the window and car journeys and just wish I could sing like Adele <laughs> or like Aww. wish that I could play the guitar. I was like, I wish I just had something that yeah. I could do. And everyone would like gather around and want to like hear about me being cool. And I feel like she has that moment with tarot. Yeah. And I think it's interesting as well, because I think with teen girls, we give them such a narrow remit for excellence. Like you can be you can be great at school and people will like that about you ish if you're not too like in their face about it yeah you can be sporty but you can't be too sporty otherwise people think that's weird too it's like and then there's kind of nothing else that you're allowed to sort of stand out with really I feel like the worst thing you can tell a teenage girl or a young woman is that they're being too much and to be excellent at something you have to be really into it (laughs) and it's like it's seen as being this kind of slightly embarrassing thing and so I wanted to give Maeve something that she's really good at that is so intrinsic to, I think, the teen girl experience. Like, yes, she's really good at tarot, but 
what tarot is, is reading people. It's being perceptive. It's being empathetic. It's listening. It's all these things that come quite intrinsic to growing up female anyway, <laughs> you know, and then it just sort of manifests in the tarot. And um, I think that those qualities should be rewarded as much as intellectual or academic excellence, you know? It's so true. And why is it that people really poo-poo astrology and tarot and like the woo-woo stuff? Is it because it is gendered, isn't it? That's like, oh, it's I the woman's it's thing. Because I get really annoyed. Me and my boyfriend fight about it all the time because yeah. I'll say something with deadly seriousness about my star sign or how yeah. I'm feeling. And the way that he shoves it to one side, I'm like, you wouldn't do that, I don't think, if it was more mainstream or or like a masculine thing. Like, you right. just think it's silly because like girls like it. I mean, he would argue this. That's why we argue. But that's how I feel. And I also think that, I think it's totally valid. And it's also, there's all these... um. I can't remember any of their names. There's always like personality tests that like big companies use to determine. Have you ever worked in a corporate environment? I wish I could remember what they were called, but it's like um, they ask you all these vague questions and they give you like a personality terminology. And it's like, oh, you're more of a red yellow and you're a yellow blue or whatever. And like that, they're, they're, it's the same thing as tarot. It's the same thing as horoscopes. It's just you found a bit more of a corporate masculine way yeah it's a bit like dieting as well like men will never say they're on diets they'll say that they're like biohacking or something or they're you know it's it's so strange it's true because i guess it's just the fact that we are using the the stars and maps and things that aren't like tangible or physical maybe i just think yeah it uses a bit of your imagination but it's really fun and to me it feels very real yeah yeah, I think as well, this is something I've been thinking about a lot. Is I think that um, things like magic and tarot, astrology, all of the, you know, vaguely spiritualism stuff, it's mostly used by women, um, people of color, queer people, people who generally feel like the world is unfair <laughs> because it is. And people who are looking to sort of close a gap. It's so interesting. I spend so much time on like magical forums and Wiccan forums and stuff. And there's so the, the level of posts that you see on there, there'll literally be women being like, my ex won't leave me alone and he keeps breaking the um, restraining order I placed against him. The police will not help me. Can you please recommend a spell to bind him so he will not bother me or my children anymore? And I was like, oh my God, that is just somebody who's trying to fill a gap between like the tiny resources or no resources that society will allow them and their own personal safety. You know, that's what magic is doing there. And reading things like that have really informed me shaping these books. It's true. And to be honest, it's like if a coping mechanism in any way within reason works for someone, then great. I feel that it's, I feel that whenever I have these experiences like with a Reiki or go Mm. and see my reflexologist or I have these things, I don't really share what happens within the room because I just feel like if anyone laughed at it, I would actually yeah. be really upset because it's like, it's meaningful and therefore I just keep it to myself. Yeah, <laughs> I know, I know. And like, yeah, I do think that it's, it's a bit like when you first start going to therapy and you start telling people what your therapist said and you can see them glaze over and you're like, it's a bit like telling people like you, about your dreams. You're like, oh, yes. this, is, this is about me. Yeah. <laughs> this really has no space for anyone else. But you've you've been into tarot for a while, haven't you? As in, you've yeah. taught yourself, and you have you. Did I read that you have lots of different decks? Yeah, and yeah. You collect it, and you and your friend Jennifer Cowney, who you're mm-hmm. doing the Fane event with. Yes. So 
how did it how does it play a role in your life and did you have to do any extra research or was it sort of like actually I can use that in this book quite easily it was so I started learning I dabbled with it a lot when I was a teenager but never seriously um and it was always just like having the book out and being like oh this means death um and then when I was about 25 I got really into it again um Actually, because my boyfriend gave it to me as like a gag gift, because I was always just sort of going into like occulty shops and he was like, here you go, kind <laughs> of thing. And I was like, oh, no, these are really beautiful and I really want to learn what it's about. And then the more I got into it and Jen um, got into it as well, and she actually paid to go on a course at Treadwells, which um, are apparently great. And she's now basically makes half of her living off of tarot, Amazing. which is very, very cool. Um, it's like, what's so amazing about tarot to me is that it's a it's a picture and an image and a and a cipher for every single emotion you've ever had. Like there are seventy eight cards, and it's really hard to find a card that represents an emotion that you haven't had. It's right. like it's like there's stuff like you know fear and hatred and jealousy, but it's also you know that kind of thing where you've gotten something but you're not quite sure if you deserve it. There's literally a card for that. You know, mm-hmm. there's there's cards for loss that aren't. Some of them are, you know, loss that you committed. Some of them are loss that somebody else's done to you or whatever and I just think that's so amazing that they've been around since literally the 15th century and originally as a card game and they could still hold so much resonance it really excites me that and it feels like an exchange that I'm having with all of the mostly you know women and sort of misfitty type of people since the 15th century who've been relating to this in the same way that I have. It feels like this wonderful exchange. Oh, I love that. It's like history going round in circles and that's yeah. all joining, joining up. Because I've only had it done a few times by someone. And I, what I really liked is it's not like, let me read your palm and tell you yeah. what I know. It's like, you're very much in the exchange. It's very much a chat. And yeah. it's almost like you're doing the work too and you get to like put your layer on top of it and yeah. storytell, I suppose. Yeah, completely. And like... I think people come into these things with the wrong energy often. Like people go to a psychic or to a tarot reader and they're upset because she didn't like guess all these things about their life. And it's like, you went into that with bad faith. Like you should just like let yours, if you're ever going to a psychic or a tarot reader, just come in and don't expect a party trick or for her to suddenly come out with, and your boyfriend, Ted, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, it's like you just, she will have noticed things in your demeanor like you seeming anxious or ill at ease for whatever. And then she'll look at your cards and then she'll, maybe she'll look at your cards again. Maybe she'll look at your glasses and she will form a puzzle together that everyone in your life is already forming the minute they look at you, but she'll tell you and she'll do it with visual aids, you know? And sometimes you need to hear these things, you know? Yes, exactly. Exactly. I I just wanted to make a note as well about how amazing all the characters are, not just Maeve. Oh, it is such you. a beautiful world that you've created. And it's funny because I interviewed Jacqueline Wilson in this exact layout right oh, now. Wow. And I remember we were talking about how she kind of felt like she kind of had to keep with the times a little bit with her yeah. YA because yeah. she's obviously older now. But there are universal themes that never change. And I felt like mm. in your book, I really got that, that yes, it's like a modern book like it's come out now but it felt very universal and if someone read this in like 20 30 years it would feel Aww. very of now but also of forever 
if that makes sense. Oh, forever, I think so. Thank and, you. Um, also, lovely to be compared to Jackie Wilson, <laughs> the, the hero, the god. Well, I know, yeah, our hero. I, seriously, like she. I think she's one of the reasons I thought I could write books. Yeah, she's just so welcoming and talks about things that aren't just the traditional, I suppose. But yeah. um, what was that like creating this cast of characters? Because they're, they're all very different. And in a review, I think that I don't know where it's from, but someone had said that your characters were thoughtful and not tokenistic. And I thought that sums it up. So thoughtfully done. Oh, thank you so much. Um, yeah, I, do, I don't really know where to begin, really. But because there was this thing where when I was writing it at first, I was writing from totally just a instinct point of view and because i grew up in an extremely white and sort of quite cis and hetero like i didn't i don't think i really knew any even gay people growing up i think it was like i had like one gay friend you know it's like that kind of thing um because i grew up in a in a very white city at the time that i was just writing from that point of view and then when i got about 10,000 words in i was like yeah eh, you know this isn't quite right and and also thinking with my business head as well, I was like, the young adult series have such a potential to reach so many people. And off, and sometimes they even get televised or, or made into films or whatever. It's like, I would be so annoyed if I had this like one shot to like reach all these people and they were all the same mm-hmm. white teens that I was do you know what I mean totally you you're so right with that with that that YA can have an actual impact on young people yeah. it's a huge thing yeah I, I really really felt that and and so I tried to be as thoughtful about it as I possibly could so Fiona for example in the book is a friend that Maeve meets early on and she's Filipino Irish and that wasn't just like I feel like diversity can become tokenistic when it's people just sort of putting a pin in a map kind mm-hmm. of thing. And you know, the decision to make her Filipino Irish was very deliberate. First of all, I looked at sort of immigration um, statistics over the last 20 years in Ireland and I saw that Brazilian and Filipino were quite high. And because Filipino, um, there, there was there was a huge recruiting drive to get nurses in from the Philippines in Ireland because we have this aging population. And I was like, okay, cool. Like, that's interesting. Let's look into the Philippines as a culture a bit more. And then I saw that they had this huge tarot and mysticism culture themselves. And they also um, are mostly a Catholic country because they were colonized by Spain. I was like, oh, I come from a mostly Catholic country. That's something I can relate to. And so it's never, for me, it's not random. And I think that is, if there are, are, you know, I don't know, I, I, I'm sort of um, careful about accepting too much praise or feeling like I'm speaking on behalf. Well, this is how you do it, but this is how it was helpful for me. And then for Ro, and Ro's a character who in the book, Maeve has grown up with her whole life. Uh, he's like, oh, my, my, this is just my friend's brother. This is my friend's slightly older brother who we don't really hang out with and he's kind of shy and I don't really think about him that much. But as the book goes on, he sort of emerges as a character who is questioning their gender hugely. And that is an extremely common experience that we are pretending has been invented in the last five years, but has been around forever. And uh, so I was sort of wanted to flesh out that character and also to have this character who's the love interest, but who also, I was just really sick of seeing in YA, because I read a lot of YA, 
really sick of seeing these characters who are women who are like, oh, I'm, I'm one of the boys though. I wear like a, my big t-shirt and I fix up a classic car with the boy next door. And then one day he kisses me and he's silent and brooding and I have to figure out all his emotions. I was like, no, I want someone, I don't want a girl who's one of the boys. I want a boy who's one of the girls. I want somebody who's femme and gentle and hot, you know, like, cause that's so more representative of the kind of people I would fall in love with when I was that age. Totally. Like people who were genuine, genuinely questioning things or just seemed strange or like who I couldn't quite figure out straight away. That's the person that that lights up the teenage girl in me, you know? Yeah, definitely. And I, I really think it, it doesn't, it shouldn't be labeled brave on quotes to like yeah. branch out from the things, you know, like this is fiction. And I just think when I read the book, it made me want to be braver in my writing. So oh, I really enjoyed it. And I, I wondered on that, because I know you just said you did, research but how much would you say the ratio is between researching a character versus just like the heart and guts of it because like you say yeah. like it's a human experience we have imaginations we can we we can use our real life experience with who we know and it, it, almost researching it sometimes can like take you down a bit of a spreadsheet route when when it comes from like and do you know feelings. what i just and i totally know what you mean because this is like the eternal question for me as well which so i have recently i'm not gonna say binned i'm gonna say shelved shelved a book I had 80,000 words written of because I had gotten so bogged down in the research in a, in a, in a good way I think like I interviewed a lot of people for this book and like I, I took like very diligent notes and I did a lot of reading and I just it got all got in my head too much and I don't know I sort of the only thing way I can talk about it is that whenever I when I'm writing a novel and it's working and I've written five now um can i just pause say that's freaking incredible <laughs> considering we we've known each other since was, we we're both social media editors i know <laughs> like five novels later geez i know like three of them are out and two of them are in the paddock um, but you're i mean you're no slouch yourself on us so. um but there's a different when you're writing a novel and you know on some intellectual level that you're making it up, but on your in your soul and in your heart, you're like, this is what happened. And I'm simply writing it down what happened. But th this novel I was writing that I had got bogged down in the research with, I was like, this all feels made up. <laughs> it just yeah. feels so really made up. <laughs> yeah. Because I'd actually written down a quote from an uh, interview you did. Oh no, a piece you wrote in the Irish Independent where you said, all our hidden gifts is fiction under every made up story. But under every made up story is a tiny germ of truth. And it's so interesting because it always comes back around to this, the fact that a memoir can feel really made up and fiction yeah. can feel like just crawling with raw truth. I know. I, and it was, it's so funny that when people write memoirs, people are, are just jump to say like, well, that didn't really happen. And when people write fiction, they're like, that's what happened. <laughs> yeah. And you're like vulnerable and everyone's like, why are you vulnerable? It's made up. And you're like, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Emotionally, it's not. Yeah. It's so weird. But like critically, it's like people accuse one thing of being the other all the time. It's so interesting to me. <laughs> yes. Well, considering you've written that many novels and the fact that when, when I read one of your novels, it is just like, oh my God, your brain. Like there's just oh. a lot in it you you've clearly worked so hard on your books and I guess a question that I think people listening would like to know as well is just how do you and I'm not trying to quiz you on your process but how do you get it done like day to day mm. do, are you do you have routine are you just like working in bed at random hours mm. how how have you found it works now 
No, I, I keep fairly standard nine to, I say nine to five. I'm lying. It's like, it's like 10 till four. <laughs> like, I, I'm not, I'm not a long hours type of person. Um, and I don't know. I just think that you don't need to be at your desk that much. I think even when I say 10 till four, I'm probably, you know, <laughs> I just, I, what I think is that when I do my first drafts, it is like being in love a bit and I just sort of go very wild eyed and that's all I want to do. And those 10 till four hours are, are absolutely committed. And I, I think people in my life find it quite hard actually, because like my, my mother said this to me in a very kind of kind way, but she really meant it where she was like, you know, sometimes you're so focused that it's, when, I, when I'm with you, you're extremely focused on me, but then you go and focus on something else and I feel like I've done something wrong. Mm-hmm. And I think that's like a very, she's a very eloquent person. I think that's how a lot of people in my life feel, that like I'm very switched on and focused on them. And then as soon as I'm off them, they sort of stop existing. And <laughs> Are you that way? Yeah, but I also, I think it's good to be that in in terms of being present with someone is actually yeah. really good. I know people who are with someone and their their mind is in their book. And yeah. that I think could be harder for people. At least you're with them in the moment. Yeah. But I am like that. And I know what you mean about that kind of all consuming feeling of I don't want to do anything else. Yeah. And people need to understand it. I my friends know me now. They're like, okay, you're not going to come to the pub. You're obsessed yeah. with your book. We'll see you on the other side. Yeah. Fine. I think it is fine. Yeah. Um like I I would say that the most common text message I send is apologizing for not sending text messages. Mm. Is, you, is that you too? Well, d- sort of. But do you go in seasons then as in, right, first draft, not not really going to be around. Sorry, guys. Yeah. Handing it in. I'm going to come up for air. Like, do yeah. you go in waves like that? I do. I do. Like, the, the well, yeah, I think that's what's so useful about books in general is that you work in these stints and then you stop working and then, then you fanny about for a bit. I really enjoy the fannying about too. I think I'm really good at the fannying about. Um, me too. Yeah. Did you come off Twitter for a bit? Did I see? Yeah. Did that work? <laughs> yeah, it did actually. It really did. I came off for like a lot of last year. And now, do you know what? Actually, when I'm at the worst level of social media is right now, which is this horrible moment of I just finished um, or just doing a copy edit. Like for, for the listeners, like a copy edit is basically the last pass where it's like, you emotionally feel totally done with the book. You feel like the story has been told and it does not need your attention anymore. But there are very clever people who will say things like, look, you imply on page 24 that it's Monday, but actually we see that it's Wednesday. And it's like, you know, she's wearing tights in this scene, but then she's wearing jeans in the next scene. And they're all very simple things when I'm laying them out. out loud. But when you see it in a document, it short circuits your brain yeah. and you want to kill yourself. Like it's so bad. And it's just like my work reward ratio when I'm on those copy edits is like five minutes of work, 25 minutes of Twitter. And Mm -hmm. it's, I feel awful. I feel like somebody who's just eaten junk food all day. Like, I think it's the worst part of writing books. (laughs) It's really bad. God, but it's so good to hear you say that because I think people don't know what goes on behind the scenes sometimes. And actually it looks just really fun to be sat at your desk typing out a book. But actually it's really gruelling by the end. And there's lots of different stages. So for example, if you now need to go and lie down in your bed for like five days, that needs to be put into the process sometimes I feel. That needs to be put. And it's also hard because like like yourself, I work across a number of genres. So it's um, 
it's kind of a relay race where it's like, okay, this is on hold for a while because I've just filed it. So they need to correct my homework potentially. So I'm going to go work on this thing over here. I'm going to work on my podcast. I'm going to work on this. And so you're just sort of keeping all these things alive. And it can be genuinely really exhausting. And like, I think I got really burnt out towards the start of this year. Yeah. God, I feel like we're all just learning how to also move in this new world as well with COVID happening. It's like, yeah. I don't know about you because I worked from home before, but this yeah. has been a different experience of working from home. It's not just like, oh, business as usual. Yeah, It's also adapting and I don't know, shrinking. I've shrunk my life down basically because yeah. I could not manage otherwise. Yeah. What shrunk how? I guess just uh, shrinking in terms of the people that I message and, and message yeah. back, if I'm being honest. I feel like I've had a massive cull. <laughs> um, really? And so actually I'm like, okay, these are the things I want to achieve. These are the people I like. That's it. Yeah, I think that's that's as well. That's such a being in your thirties thing. Cause I think we're like at the same age, basically, right? Yeah. Um, and like that thing of like, eh, you know, <laughs> like. Well, it's is what's funny is I feel like I wrote the book on being a multi hyphenate, and I still stand by doing multiple yeah. things. I love that. Yeah. But <laughs> there's a limit, and actually, you can do multiple things. Yeah. But you have to really be intentional with those things. Yeah. And are you are you at the moment like just hooked on the sort of the buzz of saying no to things because I'm really there at the moment. Yes, but I wanted to ask you, are you good at, at that? I feel, I, I assume, I don't know, I find like the confidence of like you on just in general yeah. would be able to say no to people quite easily. Do you know what I really, what I'm really enjoying saying no to at the moment? This is, I told Dolly I wouldn't say, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm going to say, but like after Sentimental in City got inexplicably huge, um, we got all these people asking for us to interview us, uh, like the, the Guardian and, and and the Times and all these these lovely people who wanted to like show the podcast off. And we were just like, no. <laughs> Love that though. <laughs> Love that. I think because we sort of sensed that, first of all, we'd had such a fun time doing it that we didn't want to just sit and be like, well, do you not find the show problematic? And then let's be like, yes, it can be quite problematic. And we're just like, no, that would, first of all, that would make it less special. And second of all, we felt like we'd created something that people felt quite culty about. And we like, if we talk about it too much, then it, it stops being fun. Yes. <laughs> you know? but I, I think that is the true power of no, is when you're yeah. not saying no to stuff you don't care about, you're saying no to stuff that actually looks kind of fun yeah. or wouldn't hurt. Like that's a yeah. powerful no. Yeah. So that's really, I'm It, it did that. feel powerful. Every time we said no, we were high. <laughs> yes. And also we're in an industry and a very despy, thirsty culture where yeah. saying saying no is quite rare, I think. So we're also yeah. scared. We're also scared of time running out. We're scared of like things not coming to us or we're scared of being irrelevant. So like to say no is like a power move. I know. And I think as well, because both Dolly and I know that we're not in a position to say no when it comes to like promoting our fiction and it's like you kind of have to take every gig going you have to be like even this yeah, even this <laughs> fucking chicken shit gig <laughs> I dragged her here yeah. um, but like yeah like you know there are like podcasts that no one's are going to listen to like different far different to this and um, that I've done that I, I knew as I was doing them like no one's ever going to hear this yeah <laughs> but still you're like you have to sort of put in the hours when it comes to promoting your book because you never know every sale helps etc but with the podcast we were like we've got nothing to sell here <laughs> this is it yeah oh but you could tell it was just two friends having fun and I, I think it's nice to leave it as it is yeah um so my last question I guess is how has this been different, this publication? I mean, it's out tomorrow as recording, but yeah. listeners, it's out now. I'm leaving the link below. 
Um, Because your book came out last summer. My debut novel came out last summer. Do you feel like it's more exciting now that you're not just like in the dark, dark lockdown? Life is opening up again a little bit. I I took that other book being uh the pl- all the plans being scuppered really badly i think mm, me too i think we were whatsapping at that time yeah. because we were just like how dare we not have a book launch this I was know, awful i know it was, it was it was so nice though that so many other people were also going through it but yeah i found it really difficult but i also found it strangely freeing because i was so afraid that it was going to be a failure and then having this moment where it was like look, we just going to have to accept that it's not going to sell as many copies as we thought it was because the shops are literally closed. Yeah, like the, the best excuse. Yeah, <laughs> to, to be like my sales. <laughs> yeah, I remember being like, do you know what? I remember saying it to my editor on the phone. I was like, when she was telling me, like, babe, like worst case scenario in 20 years, this gets to be on a retrospective of books forgotten by the pandemic. <laughs> and, <true. laughs> you know? But I loved what you said. Um, it's quite a nice note to end on which is about how you appreciated actually without the without all those glamorous things without the fancy canapes or whatever of yeah. a book launch like it does remind you why we do it and yeah. it's kind of not about that even though it's a nice perk it's about the the gr- grime and the the grit of actually writing and even though it's hard it's kind of why we do it i suppose yeah and that just, sounds really worthy but you know what i mean i know but it, what was nice about it is that like when you strip away the the praise and the uh, attention and the like, like we, we pretend to hate it, but like, you know, l- like getting someone to do your makeup and then get a nice photograph taken of you. Like, it's cool. It's fun. You feel like an actress for a couple of weeks of the year, you know, yeah. and everyone wants that. Right. Uh, when you take it all away, it's still like, oh, I love this job still, you know, and that's nice. You know, it's nice to have that level of certainty that you're definitely doing the right thing. Not everyone gets that. Definitely, definitely. And I guess I worry now that I, like, because the pace of books is like, some people write a book a year, don't know how. Mm. Do you feel that you have a momentum now that you feel you you want to carry on with? Or are you yeah. feeling like actually you could, you could I don't know, have bigger breaks between books? How, how are you thinking about the future? If I'm totally honest, and I would only tell you this, you and your millions of listeners... <laughs> But I'm in a phase of my life that I'm calling the wall of money, <laughs> where I I have no, no one's relying on me for anything. Like I, I'm not that interested in, in planning a wedding at the moment. I'm not going to have kids for another few years. And I'm really enjoying the selfish pursuit of putting my head down, making work I'm really proud of that takes as much time as I need to make making money that's good for the first time in my career spending on stupid shit <laughs> and having a whale of a time like <laughs> and like I think like I, this, I have the sense of like you know write as much as you can now because I do I do want to have a kid in a few years and like I, I want to be able to spend time with it and take a year off and have a proper mat leave and all that stuff and um I, I would like to build a wall of money. Love that. I've just realised <laughs> that me that my question baby. could have sounded very like father of someone you're dating. Like, where do you see yourself in five years' time? <laughs> um, definitely wasn't prying into behind your... the wall of money, Emma, <laughs> <laughs> with my baby. I think that might just have to be the title of this episode. <laughs> oh, well, thank you for coming on. And no wonder sentimental garbage is, you know, charting like nobody's business because you're so you are so honest, and that's why we love you so. Thank you. Thank you very much, Emma. This is lovely. <laughs> 